The scripture reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 16, verses 25 through 40. It can be found on page 925 in the Black Bibles. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we are on the tail end of spring break, and like many or some of you, my family and I got a chance to get out of town. We Spent a few days down by uh, the beach this last week, and it was a couple of hours uh, drive, and so uh, we've got two rowdy kids, as I'm sure some of you who have had to try and teach them in Sunday school know. And uh, so in order to keep them entertained, we downloaded a few movies on the iPad so that they could watch. Uh, and one of the films was a 1990s Disney film, A Bug's Life. Anybody ever seen that or remember that? Uh, the movie is about this young ant uh, who's a misfit. He's named Flick, and he's looking for some tough warriors to defend his ant colony. There is a group of grasshoppers that's been terrorizing uh, this young ant colony uh, that is composed by many ants, uh, but the grasshoppers are led by this mean thug named Hopper. So Flick uh, heads to the city to try to find some warrior bugs. And while he does find a group willing to stand up and defend the ant colony, unfortunately, these uh, warrior bugs he brings back turn out to be this inept troop of circus performers. And you can imagine that it does not go well for them. Now, uh, what is interesting to note early on is in the movie is the fact that you can clearly see that there are very many ants compared to the very few grasshoppers. 
So yes, the grasshoppers are big and they're mean and they're scary, but the ants are many. There's a lot of them. In one scene, Hopper explains their precarious situation to uh, his underlings when he says, you let one ant stand up to us, then they all might stand up. Those puny little ants outnumber us 100 to 1. And if they ever figure that out, there goes our way of life. It's not about food. It's about keeping those ants in line. Even though the ants couldn't see it and understand it and believe it, something so small could carry great power. The specific text that we just read this morning details how the gospel first entered European territory and how it had its first conversions. John actually preached uh, the first half of this narrative last week where we learned of the first two conversions on the European continent. The first was a businesswoman named Lydia. The second was a demon-possessed slave girl. And the third was a jail guard and his family whom we'll read about and learn about today. Now from here on out, Paul will go on to plant, to start some of the most well-known churches that we later read about in the New Testament. And what started as this small, fragile, weak, insignificant band of followers and disciples of this marginalized Jewish rabbi ends up taking over and becoming largest movement religion the world had ever known ends up taking over the Roman Empire but how could something so simple so seemingly small and insignificant like the message that these first Christians were sharing carry so much power without the use of swords of military might or of even strong rhetoric and persuasion how did it happen well, what I want us to see is that this text shows us that the message that they were carrying called the gospel shows its power in three ways. First, the gospel is the power of the spirit. Second, the gospel is the power in suffering. And third, the gospel is the power for salvation. So it's, the gospel is the power of the spirit, it's the power in suffering, and it's the power for salvation. So let's look at each of these as we walk through the text. So first, the gospel is the power of the Spirit. Now, some uh, definitions might be in order here. Um, what the Bible calls the gospel, which I'll be using a lot throughout our sermon, is the good news that in Jesus, in and through Jesus, the Messiah God has accomplished his ultimate purpose and mission of, being, of bringing universal healing, renewal, restoration, beauty, and reconciliation to the world. Jesus, the true king of the world, has come to put everything back together, to fix everything that was broken, to take it all back to its original purpose and design. And it's good news because with the arrival of this kingdom comes forgiveness of sins, liberation from demonic power, 
restoration of the marginalized, justice for the poor, food for the hungry, liberation from political oppression, the end of natural disasters, and healing of the body. That is great news. This message of good news is what the Bible shorthand refers to as the gospel. But how is this message, is this news supposed to go out into the world? Well, what the Bible demonstrates is that rather than do it all himself, God, which he could, and he could probably do a better job at it by doing it himself, is that instead he creates and shapes and founds and molds this small community of followers called the church who will be responsible for demonstrating and proclaiming the message of the kingdom everywhere that they go. And that's precisely what we see happening in the book of Acts. Acts shows us this Christian movement multiplying, expanding, spreading like wildfire all across the Roman Empire, but doing so in very ordinary, simple, everyday ways that Christians are all invited to join in and participate in. Now, as part of this movement, a young man named Saul, who's later called Paul, is converted. And he's tasked with taking the gospel, this good news, into new territories. So he embarks on what is called the first missionary journey, which we've been seeing the last couple of weeks, where he goes out uh, through modern-day Turkey, begins to make disciples and develop leaders, raise leaders, and start new communities of faith, we call churches. Now, after he finishes his first preaching tour, he goes back home to rest. And while he's there, he begins to receive reports and updates from these disciples and leaders and new churches about encouraging things, how they're growing and they're expanding, but also some concerning things about divisions and doctrinal issues and personal strife that is beginning to plague these young, new, small communities. So he decides to go on a second tour, to go encourage them, to affirm their work, but also to challenge them and to correct some things that were beginning to go wrong in these communities. Now, up until this point, Paul's missionary strategy was very simple, right? How he would spread the message was simple. He would enter a town or a city, He would go into the Jewish synagogue, and once in there and accepted, he would begin to proclaim Jesus as the Messiah, as this liberating king who had been sent from God to put the world back to rights. However, on one particular trip, he and his friends are taken on a detour to an area they hadn't been in before, this region called Macedonia, and specifically this city called Philippi in northern Greece. Now, there are no Christians or churches in Philippi. Instead, the few Jews who are there uh, and who uh, desire to worship God set up what was common in those times, the small temporary place of prayer outside of the city by the river led by women. And what happens next, of course, is what happens everywhere the gospel goes. We're told the stories of three unlikely conversions 
that happened in the following months. And you would not have expected these people to convert, to believe the message, to follow this crucified Messiah. And yet they do. You begin again by reading and listening about this wealthy businesswoman named Lydia. Her and her household are baptized, and they essentially plant or start, found first church on European soil in her house. Then you read about this demon-possessed slave girl who brings much money to her owners, who use her and abuse her for wealth and for greed. She's delivered, she converts, and we can imply that she joins this small community that has started to gather at Lydia's house to worship the true king of the world. The third story, the third conversion, is the one that we read about today. Now you should know that all of this that's happening, right, in Paul and through his companions was uncharted territory for Paul. There was no church planning manual that he was following that could tell him how to deal with the doctrinal issues and splits and divisions that were going on. Even as I summarize his first and his second missionary journeys, it can be really easy to forget and to understand when reading these stories that all of this was new to Paul. We kind of think of him as having some special magical powers or even having supernatural strength and proceeding boldly without missing a single step. But that's not an entirely accurate picture. He says as much in several of his later epistles. Let's not miss how ordinary so much of what he and his friends do actually is. This is quite literally for Paul a whole new world. So how is he able to accomplish things that seem so extraordinary? Only through the power of the Spirit working through the message of the gospel. In and of themselves, like the ants, they were nothing. They were helpless. They were powerless. They were marginalized. They were small They were weak, but accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit, they are able to turn the Roman Empire, the greatest, strongest, mightiest, wealthiest empire that had ever existed up until that point, turn it upside down, is what the book of Acts will later go on to say. It wasn't done in their own strength or strategy or plan It was done in the power of the Holy Spirit. So first, the gospel is the power of the Spirit. Second, the gospel is the power in suffering. To recap from last week, uh, the demon-possessed slave girl is delivered. She's set free from her bondage, uh, free from demonic power. Uh, free from slavery, under these men who were holding her captive. Afterwards, the men who owned her, of course, are not happy. And so to get back at Paul and Silas, they dragged them out to the marketplace, which was their public court of law. And they bring trumped-up charges against 
these men, telling the crowd and the magistrates that they were agitators and that they were introducing ideas that were not legal for them to believe or to listen to in that region. Now, as a result of that, being falsely accused, uh, they are beaten with big, heavy sticks. They're thrown into the deepest prison cell, uh, and they are chained by their feet to the walls. Now, one uh, commentator reflecting on this uh, writes this, or said this. There would be no light at night and little light during the day. There would be little provision for sanitation or ventilation, so the stench would be terrible. Beaten backs would be subject to infection. Feet fastened in stocks would add physical discomfort. Unable to shift positions, prisoners would grow more uncomfortable by the minute. It is difficult to imagine a more terrible place. And what do Paul and Silas do in the midst of their pain, their discomfort, their anxiety, and their stress? The text says that at about midnight, they should have been sleeping, resting. Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Praying and singing hymns to God. They were able to find joy in their suffering. Now again, what we should not think, and indeed what we are not allowed to think, is that these men were somehow elite citizens who had VIP access to God in a way that us ordinary, simple, everyday citizens of the kingdom of God don't have access to. Their backs certainly bled. Bones were certainly broken. Tears were certainly shed. Just like any one of us in that circumstance. So how is it that they could find joy in their suffering? Not happiness. Not gladness. Not glass half full kind of perspective. Not this mystic Buddhism that tries to eliminate or minimize pain and agony and suffering, but a deep, heartfelt, spirit-filled joy in the midst of suffering. Well, Paul will later write to these very same Philippians these words. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. No right, many years later as he was writing those words and the Philippians were reading it, their minds would have gone back to this time, to this episode where Paul and Silas were beaten, tortured. And in the midst of that, they heard that what they did at midnight was pray and sing hymns. Do you know what it means to learn something? You know, we've had uh, several babies being born or about to be born in, um, amongst our friends and, and family. And it's always incredible to watch babies begin to learn how to be human. Learning to live and breathe and move 
uh, and survive life outside of the womb. Learning to focus their eyes on the person that is talking to them. Learning to touch and move their arms and hands and place them on mom and dad and others. Learning how to move and crawl and walk. To learn and to fail and to learn from failure is human. That is what Paul means when he says, I have learned to be content no matter the circumstances. Like a child learning to play the piano. Like a runner learning to pass off a baton. Like a quarterback learning to pass a ball into the end zone. Paul and Silas, through much trial and error, success and failure, by the power of the Holy Spirit, are able to get to a point where in the midst of pain and suffering and agony, they can find joy in their suffering. They can sing and they can pray to God at midnight because they had learned to do so, to learn to praise God, to sing, is not natural. It's certainly not easy. It has to become second nature. How does something become second nature? Uh, you remember the, the story of Sully Sullenberger who on the cold morning of January 15th, 2009, as he was flying Airbus A320, uh, struck uh, a flock of birds, one of the en- uh, flock of birds struck one of the engines um, shortly after takeoff, and he lost all engine power. And what should have been And what could have been a terrible tragedy instead ended with Sullenberg gliding his plane over the Hudson River, saving all 155 people on board the aircraft. It was named the Miracle on the Hudson. But was it? Now, I'm not refuting miracles, obviously. So don't hear what I'm not saying. There was something of a supernatural order happening here. But what I am saying is that dubbing it a miracle might not do justice to the lifelong pursuit of consistency by a competent pilot practicing day after day, month after month, year after year, until one day his flying even in or especially during difficult, unexpected circumstances, had become second nature. N.T. Wright, the theologian, calls what results from such practice virtue. It's what happens when wise and courageous choices have become second nature. Not because they're normal, not because they're easy, not because they're simple, they're complex, they're difficult, none of us want to do it. But you've done them so much, you've repeated them so often that they become second nature. It's what results from a thousand small decisions. Steady 
and consistent spiritual disciplines and habits had been practiced by Paul and by Silas over a lifetime so that in the midst of their suffering we're able to see the results in this one moment that demanded it the most. Patient endurance in suffering because they had learned to do so. Third and finally, the gospel is the power for salvation. So what happens next? Well, the text tells us that there is a great earthquake, that the foundations of the prison are shaking, which is um, apocalyptic prophetic language uh, meant to alert us that something big is about to happen. And it certainly does. Uh, All the prison doors swing open. Everyone's bonds are unfastened. And you can imagine the chaos that would ensue after such a phenomenon. The jailer, who I would imagine takes a minute to shake off the dust and realize what has just happened, sees all of this, supposes that all the prisoners have escaped and he readies to kill himself. Because he'd much rather confront death by his own hand rather than leaving it up to Roman justice. Uh, During Roman times, jailers and guards were held personally responsible for the guards and the prisoners that they were charged with caring for and watching. And in some instances, as we've already seen earlier in the book of Acts, uh, they were executed for allowing prisoners to escape. But instead, Paul, who had just been singing and praying at midnight, calls out to him with assurance that they are all there. And the jailer then asks such an interesting question, a critical question. What must I do to be saved? Such a fascinating response to what he has just experienced. I suppose... Each of us might be asking a similar question if we would experience similar circumstances. Notice what the jailer doesn't ask. What must I do to join your church? What must I do to be religious? What must I do to be saved? Friends, we'll all be asking that question at some point of our lives if we haven't already. Whatever his reasons, the jailer believes that he needs to be saved, that he needs salvation, and that Paul and Silas have the answer. And Paul replies, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. There is a call to believe and a subsequent promise of salvation. But what does it mean to believe? And what or who is the jailer supposed to believe? Notice that the jailer thought he had to do something in order to be saved. Wasn't that his question? What must I do? Think about this. What if Paul had been a member of any other religion? See, if Paul, or if the jailer had asked this from any other person of any other religion, they would have given him a list of things to do. 
give X amount of dollars to the poor. Pray this prayer this many times. Find peace and enlightenment within yourself. Follow these commandments, these laws, and these rules, and then you'll be saved. The jailer knew that something had to be done in order to be saved. Or what if the jailer had asked us? How would we have answered? Isn't that how we often live our lives? As if we believe that we had to do something in order to earn God's favor, God's love. In fact, many of us grew up believing that that was precisely the point of Christianity and religion. To make us into better people so that we can get to heaven when we die. But Paul doesn't give the jailer complex plans of how a person can work their way into heaven. Because what could anyone possibly do to earn heaven? How much money would you have to give? How many good deeds would you have to do? Think about it. How many lifetimes would it take you to rack up enough credit to see God look him in the eye and say, okay, I've earned it. I deserve this. But Paul doesn't tell him he has to do anything because all that was needed to be saved had already been done. The jailer was not told to go do something to be saved, but to believe in him who had already done it all. Jesus, the Messiah, the crucified Savior, and the liberating King. So surprisingly simple and yet at the same time difficult. It's not by works. It is not by character. This is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Believe in, which is to say, have faith in, put your trust in Jesus, who has already done the work required for us to be free from the prison of sin. To believe is not to try harder. To believe is not to work harder. It's not to believe in baptism or church traditions or a creed. It's to cease, to stop from your efforts. To stop it. Trying to earn God's love. Stop trying to earn God's favor. Stop trying to work for God's grace and intervention and answer. To earn God's smile. It's to rely on Jesus alone. Nothing more and nothing less. Who, who wouldn't want to believe such good news? And that's precisely what happens. The jailer believes, he's converted, and he and his household are all baptized at once. And with that, the story ends. With the jailer, the guard, inviting his new family in Christ into his home, preparing a meal for them and throwing a party. Because that's the only appropriate response to encountering God's grace in your life. Jesus promised that the very gates of hell would not prevail against his church. We are meant to be on the offensive, not the defensive. Not because of our strength, not because of how strong we are, not because of how much better we are, but by the power of the Spirit that he gives to us in the gospel 
the good news of Jesus. That is the picture of movement that the Gospels in the book of Acts and this section show us again and again. This is the unchained gospel that continues even to this day. Where and how is the gospel waiting to be unchained and unleashed through you? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you and praise you for the gift that you have given us through your death and resurrection. We have access to a good, loving, graceful, and just Father. We pray that you would give us this power that was in Paul and Silas, your spirit that was able to give them joy in suffering and that was able to save them. Pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen.